Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, Managing Editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast on which we talk with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, Leon and I are joined by the brilliant Benjamin Moser to discuss his latest essay for us, which appeared in Volume 2, Issue 1, and which is available for a limited time on our website in the Now Showing section. The essay is entitled Against Translation, which is a provocative title, and it's a provocative and thought-provoking essay, um, not least because Ben is himself a translator and has dedicated much of his life to translating works um, from various languages into English. He speaks many languages. He's also a writer in his own right. But he has spent so much time immersing himself in other cultures. And so it is surprising that the essay raises questions about whether or not translation is laudable or even possible and what English speakers lose by placing too much value on simply reading texts from other cultures and spending far too little time uh, reading our own literature. Ben Moser, welcome to Liberty's Talk. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me and Leon here. So you wrote a provocative essay for us in our last issue entitled Against Translation, and you yourself are a translator. So what did you mean by that? What did you mean by against translation? I think what I meant is that translation has been surrounded by a halo of benevolence and um, unquestionable goodness that has allowed it to have this new status in American letters, and I think in English, you know, in, in English language letters, that is a lot of times based on a sort of guilt that reflects the preeminence of the English language in the world. So when I um, started working on Clarice Lispector 20 plus years ago, um, I was seen as a paragon of virtue for having helped this poor. Brazilian lady become famous, basically, um, which was true in a lot of ways. I mean, she was not known outside of Brazil. Yeah, but nobody thinks you're a paragon of virtue for any other reason. No, exactly. I mean, you know, this was all I had. And, um, and I started being really fascinated by this rhetoric because it's so weird. I mean, it's... Oh, have you not encountered it before? Well, I'm talking about 20 years ago. I think that, like, at that time there was a real palpable sense of guilt about the dominance of the English language. And there was a sense that we, quote unquote, again, this professional managerial class of virtuous, you know, upper middle class people, it was very class-based, very kind of academic adjacent. But I think a lot of English speakers felt this kind of guilt at having it so easy. You know, we get to walk into a hotel in Croatia and everybody says, good morning, Mr. Moser, you know, uh, whereas a Croatian doesn't walk into a hotel in Kansas City and they don't say Dobar dan, gospodina, whatever. But there's a kind of, um, but I thought that this was true up to a certain point, but th- that translation had become performative in a way that I wasn't comfortable with, especially because I think that the problems that, that English was facing were basically the lack of a continuity in the literary tradition. It had been gone. You know, I mean, when I'm, I feel like the last of the Mohicans in a way, like I had this very traditional literary education that was even then, you know, in the eighties, nineties considered conservative. Um, you know, it was an education that took me from Beowulf onto the great modern writers in English. And I felt that that was being lost 
in the wave of commercialization, and that translation was also kind of playing into this vogue for novelty. Let's get to that in a moment. I want to pause you there for a second and ask you about something you just said, which is that even though uh, it probably is the case that guilt was not appropriate for the work of English translators, who, as you know, were most of the time, all of the time, good, sincere, hardworking people with hopefully two languages, uh, who were simply trying to introduce treasures into our language. Putting aside the guilt part, isn't it the case, though, that other languages and other cultures, smaller languages, smaller cultures, do have a legitimate fear of English having become a, a global language? Absolutely. And, and this is something that I was fascinated to read in the book by a Japanese novelist named Minai Mizumura, who writes about how English is destroying even languages that seem to be fine. And the example that she uses is Japanese. You know, Jap Japanese is a big language. It's got a lot of people. It's not, it's not something that seems to be under threat. But actually, you know, in my life in Europe, I've seen how in France and Germany and all these countries that seem to be, you know, they're not small Inuit languages. They're, they're big countries with big languages and big traditions. But that actually... Uh, the mark of success for a writer is to be translated into English and from English into the rest of the world. Um, you know, it used to be that being translated into French or being translated into Italian or, or German was just as prestigious as being translated into English. Um, it's not the case anymore. You know, there's very few languages, maybe Chinese and maybe Spanish, that are big enough to withstand this kind of shift of critical power into another language. And the language is English almost always, and English readers and critics are actually not equipped to read foreign literature in the way that we think they are. You know, you think, oh, well, you know, let's make it available, and that's true, and that's very laudable, but on the other hand, what do I know about, you know, even a culture that I know very well, um, or relatively well, that's not Mongolia or Sudan, but, you know, something like, like, like Portugal or, or, or Denmark, um, you actually don't really know that much about those cultures. Well, I'll tell you a funny story, Ben, about this. It's sort of about the comedy of cultural transmission. Many decades ago, I was walking down the street with Yehuda Amichai, and he said to me, in all sincerity, that the greatest contemporary American novelist was Truman Capote. And I assured him that there was no way that this was the case. And then later that day, I walked into Stamatsky's, the great bookshop, and I happened to notice that there had just appeared a series of translations of books by Truman Capote. In the same way, on this side, when Harold Bloom once reviewed a book of Yehuda's, I think, he began the Times. It began with a with a with a sentence ex cathedra, the way Harold used to write, <laughs> that went something like: "The strong Israeli writers today are Amichai, uh, Yehoshua, Oz, and Grossman." And I thought to myself, "Right, buddy, those are the ones that have been translated and that you've read." Well, I can give you a great example of that as well. I mean, here in I'm in Holland now, but you know, I spend most of my time these days in France. And um, every single French article, 
person talking about American literature will inevitably mention not only Philip Roth, but they'll mention The Human Stain. It's like the only book that every French snob has read. And so, and they think that this is the thing that explains race in America, and this is Philippe Roth and all this. And as soon as you start noticing that they all are referring to the same book, you realize like, these people are from Bordeaux. They don't know shit about Philadelphia or, or, or Carson City, Nevada. You know, how could they? But there is a sort of intimacy that translation gives. And actually, it's kind of related to something I've written about with Sontag, which is that the camera gives this kind of false intimacy with people. You think that you see the picture and you know what you're talking about. But in fact, we all know that the reality of people behind cameras is totally different from the reality of the actual person. And we also know if we know a literature, we know that Truman Capote is not the greatest American novelist. And not only do we know that, but it's totally preposterous. And, and, and any American who knows anything would laugh at that idea. Um, but you see this happening time and time again with international literature as it's received in English. But this is what I wanted to talk about in this essay a little bit. It gets reflected back onto the cultures. that. So if, if everybody in New York or London decides that so-and-so is the great Slovenian poet, then the Slovenians will also start thinking that because the cultural prestige of English is so great that this person, you know, Slavoj Žižek, I mean, I have no idea how smart he is compared to every other Slovenian professor of philosophy. I but, um, Move on. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, I mean, so suddenly, you know, you get this kind of, you get writers drafted into this kind of celebrity culture that, um, that is the enemy of literature and it's the enemy of cultural tradition. Well, what American critics and writers tend to do periodically, I've seen this over decades, is create foreign gods to worship. And they always have one or two who overwhelm them completely and they create, you know, these intellectual shrines to them. The most recent was Knausgaard. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure what your view of Knausgaard is. Mine, let's say, is not as favorable as many others. Uh, but it wasn't just the question of how good or bad a writer he is. It's that, that you know, somebody brought us the good news from abroad and that we, we are so, in some ways, insecure about our own literary quality that we're always looking for foreigners to worship, which is the flip side. Right. Well, this is where you see that America is still a colonial country, Right. You think like, oh, we have to like, you know, we're not, we don't care about the guy from Chicago or, or Denver. You know, we want the person from Oslo because they seem smarter than we are, which often is true. I congratulate you on saying colonial but not colonialist. It's a great relief. Um, ah. ah, well, we have a little bit of both. This brings us to the, let, let's discuss the fundamental question. What is the good and the bad that the translation of a book does so i know that i know clarice lispector because of you and um and what you did with clarice lispector was uh a, a primary act of cultural and literary service because prior to your efforts uh she was close to me i mean simply closed as you know brazilian portuguese is not a language that anyone with, a, with French or Italian can even presume to penetrate. And, um, and you opened her up. And so, and by the way, I've studied this also in the history of the Jewish tradition. 
translation has always been a primary intellectual activity because the literacy of the community was never as great as it needed to be, etc., etc. So, you know, translators were, I mean, Maimonides wrote his great work of philosophy in Arabic, so the Jews wouldn't have had it if someone hadn't put it into their own language of Hebrew. Well, and actually Hebrew was not the Jewish language. I mean, even in the time of the uh, translation of the Bible in, uh, in Alexandria, when they had this great miracle, when 70 rabbis translated it. It was, it was one of the Jewish languages. The Jews never had only one language or never spoke only one language. No, but it, but it often, I mean, it usually had one main liturgical language, which from very early on, only a very small minority of Jews spoke, which was Hebrew. Well, that, let's get into that. That, that. That's complicated. But you're right that, that, that Aramaic and later Greek and so on. And all the languages of the diaspora. Yeah. Um, and all the languages of the diaspora. Yeah, that's what happened when you attract people into many countries. Yes. But so, so of course, you always had a need for, for translation, and you still do have it. Um, in this case, it's a religious need. I think it's often a scholarly need. You know, it's important for, for, for scholarship to be able to read things that are written in other countries. Um, it's important. You know, my work with Clarice Lispector, which I'm extremely proud of. I mean, I, I don't want to. That's why I write this essay as a translator. Um, she was utterly closed to, to really everyone. Um, outside of a very, you know, very little club of, of Latin Americanists who, who are familiar with her, but she was basically not available to be read. And I think she's one of the great modern writers, and I think that it was a great thing to do, and, and I'm still doing it. You know, it's been 20 years, and there's still more coming. But um, and probably, I'll probably have at least 10 more years of this. Um, but the thing is, I think that, that that experience shows me is how difficult it is. Now, I mean, this is an author of unquestioned canonical virtue somebody who is really worshipped in brazil in a way that truman capote i can assure you is not and 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 really there's nobody it's it's very hard to think of an english language writer that's as respected and, and really loved as she is in her own country but um you know this has taken me 20 years um the work of bringing across which is translation it's really complicated it's really really hard um, I, I'm very lucky to have had great support from New Directions, from Barbara Epler, particularly, you know, in doing this this work for all these years. But it's very hard. And Clarice is writing not only in a Brazilian tradition, but also in a Jewish tradition. And in order to really understand her, you do have to understand something of both of those traditions. You have to know something about Spinoza, but you also have to know about Getúlio Vargas in the 1940s, you know, the dictator of Brazil. This is really important to understand where she's coming from. And this is true of any writer. You know, you can't, I think now we have established these few little... Wait, Ben, do you mean as a translator or as a reader? Do you mean as a translator or as a reader? You have to understand Spinoza in order to, and the dictator you just mentioned, in order to understand her. I think both. I mean, I think you, um, as a translator, you have to know it because you have to have that sense for what words really mean and for what she's really talking about. And often inside a language, you don't have to say that. You know, you say Jackie Kennedy and everybody knows what that is. Well, not necessarily in Kazakhstan. I mean, they probably know who Jackie Kennedy is, but, but languages have so many layers of illusion that, um, 
that are really just unavailable to other people. So it's hard to get that across. Well, then let's continue with this point because it's the other side. Then that being the case, we also have to consider not just what a blessing translations are and what a primary cultural literary service they provide, but also how little is accomplished in the translation of a book. And I don't just mean by that cases in which a book is translated from a language in which trans from which translation is particularly difficult. I mean, you know, I all my life I have tried to figure out. Um, I struggle with Russian poems in English all the time. I have to put five different translations of the same Mandelstam poem next to each other. The translations sometimes almost look nothing like each other, just to get some sense. When I read my beloved Brodsky's poems in English, they just don't come across. I mean, it's so. Um, and this we know, and we know that there are some languages. It, it's really hard. Hebrew is a language like that. Oh, I think all of them are hard. I think they're all hard, and especially if they have a long tradition. Hebrew has an especially long tradition. But if you think of a language that's very close to English and that's culturally not so foreign, like French, um, you realize, actually, I mean, France is a very foreign country to Americans, even though of all the foreign countries, it's one of the least. You know, it's not, it's not Tibet. Um, it's a country where, you, you know, people have a similar cultural and, 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 and political and, and religious heritage that, that's shared by a lot of English speakers. Um, but it is really hard. And, but what I really, the reason I say against translation in this book, I mean, in this, in this um, piece, is that I think that um, translation is not an unambiguous good. Often it can be another kind of consumerist indulgence just like people like having kombucha from Stockholm, you know, we all know this kind of trend in, 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 in American culture of a certain uh, social class. This is something really common. You know, I have my shoes from Milan and my, you know, my rice from Thailand. It's, it's this thing that we called globalization in the 90s and it sounded kind of exciting until it became COVID, you know, and kind of turned against us in this horrible way. But there's something... Well, that's another form of globalization, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is also not un unrelated because it's very commercial. I mean, you have Elena Ferrante, you have Knausgaard, you have Haruki Murakami. I mean, there's a few people that get um, that get tapped on the shoulder. But the expectation, I mean, I can tell you here in Holland, the expectation that the only good writers are the, the only good Dutch writers are the writers that get translated into English it's really devastating for a culture that has always been very cosmopolitan, but also very much itself. Um, the expectation, and that's what Mine Mizumura's book is about, is how that expectation corrupts Japanese in that case. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I know, again, from the one language that I translate from, which is Hebrew, English is now doing serious damage to Hebrew. It is being... English words are proliferating inside the language. It's not um, through books. Actually, this is, a, this is a really depressing story, but it's, it's so relevant. I've, I have Israeli friends, and I follow them on Instagram. And there are, I, the, only, the only things I know about the Kardashians I have learned from the Israeli friends of mine who post about them on Instagram, I found out that the, 
that they, they, they canceled the show because friends were like crying on their Instagram stories about the Kardashians. Which is like which is like pathetic, but it's also Well it's, it's a natural so, solidarity of Jews with Armenians. It's so <laughs> it's so powerful. I, I think that like the Kardashians symbolize the problem with um American the American hegemony culturally. Because Okay, but so I wanted to just say this, like that is totally true. I think that's what we all as Americans are kind of embarrassed and appalled by. But my essay really isn't about what English is doing to foreign country cultures. It's about what it's doing to English. Um, and that there's an expectation that we should dip out in and out of foreign cultures the way that we are frequent flyers and we go to Dubai for the weekend and all these kind of things that at least until recently were pretty common. You know, you go to London and, and you know, people in my world, um, you know, because I have this very as we discussed before, you know, I have this very class-based kind of Marxian uh, approach to things. But a lot of people in my world, comrade Weaseltier, um, a lot of people in my world think that London and New York are basically the same thing. This is something you hear a lot. Oh, I know a lot of people in Notting Hill, and I always stay in the East Village when, you know, this, there's this kind of trans, there's this kind of transnational social class that prides itself on consuming international things and having these kind of international lives. Now, of course, from a class analysis, this is really, I mean, it's really problematic because of course, most people just get to live in one country and in one language. Although some people, a lot more people are, are multilingual than I think we, we suspect because English speakers are rarely monolingual, but internationally it's much more common. And, but, this idea that we can kind of dip in and out of cultures like their airport lounges is very dangerous to our own culture because our culture is very old. It's, it's probably the oldest in the West. It's the oldest continually written literary culture um, in Europe. I mean, uh, the, the, you, you might say Greek is older, but that's very questionable if Greek literature has had the same continuous you know, um, English has been going on for about 1,500 years. If you think about French, French has been going on for about 500 years. Same with German or Spanish. When you insist upon the authenticity and the integrity of old cultures and languages, that there is absolutely nothing proto-fascistic about it, that this is, you're not, you're not mystifying anything. And I think it would be fair to say that... Um, that there are cases of writers who have done the work to actually become members of another or a second culture or language, and we know such cases. You are one of them. I've written, I've written, I've published books that I've written in Portuguese. You know, I've translated um, lots of books from from Dutch and, and English, and I mean from and French and Spanish and German. I mean, you know, I, I've definitely clocked my hours in the you know filling in the verb worksheets. Let's take as an example, you know, there's a man I especially admire, um, and he is the British writer Julian Barnes, and I'll tell you why I especially admire him in this context, which is that during the decades, I guess 15, 20 years ago, when, there, when so many of the writers uh, in London decided that London wasn't cool enough and they had to make it in New York, and they came over to New York, and now they write with um, 
as, as what they regard as great expect, expertise about New York and America and so on. Um, Julian Barnes stayed in London, and he writes about London. And when you read his fiction, one of the things I admire about it is actually its rootedness. And the reason I admire its rootedness is not, again, because it provides any badge of authenticity or because it makes him a true Englishman, but because his stories and his language are so redolent with the culture and the place. You know, it has the, the great advantages of being, a, and you mentioned this in your essay, a local writer. I remember years ago, forgive me, I never quote Deleuze, but Deleuze once wrote a book about, uh, in praise of minor writers, except that the minor writers he had in mind was mainly Kafka. And what he meant was that there was Kafka in this, in these few streets in Prague. I mean, you've been, this is, a, we call it a city, but Kafka's Prague was a village. And one can think of other examples, like Faulkner with his county in Mississippi, or Sholem Aleichem with his shepherd. All writers write about something specific. You don't, there's no such, this cosmopolitan global world does not exist. It's not real. And so I think it's interesting that you feel even the need to say something like this is proto-fascistic. You know, this is just about... But I don't have to tell you because movement and, and cosmopolitanism and, well, there is, it has so much prestige now. We actually live in an age, and we, why don't you talk a little bit about this? In the 1990s, there came into currency, and Penn built a whole fancy conference about it in New York every year, called World Literature. Remember World Literature? Well, world literature, you know, goes back to Goethe, and, and, and world literature is an idea that has a, a pretty interesting pedigree, which we probably don't have time to go into, but, but the idea that if you've studied any language, um, you know how different languages are, and you know how irreconcilable they are in a certain way. They're really, um, they they're whole worlds. They're not just Apple is this, but it's, you know, Apfel in German, you know, that's pretty straightforward, but, but it's, it's an entire universe and that's very hard to translate. And I think that we all in our guilt and also in our fake cosmopolitanism, we're letting, we're losing sight of what actually is us. You know, I am an American. I come from a very specific cultural tradition. I'm not saying Americans are better than Paraguayans or Congolese, but you know, that's just where I'm from. And that's my language and my culture. And even though I've lived abroad for, for half my life, um, as a teacher of mine said in France when I was a kid, um, he said, don't forget, and this was to kids whose French was very good, um, he said, you're never bilingual. You only have one language. And I always thought about that, especially because, again, you know, my French was perfect, uh, you know, accentless, and, and it was not quite my native language, but I certainly spoke it from the time I was really young. And, um, and I went to school there and all that, but it was not my language. And I, I always think about that. And you can't assume that languages and that literary traditions, which are really who you, where you get your sense of who you are from. I don't think people realize that that's where they get their sense of who they are, but it is. Um, what do you mean you lost sight of who we are? What, what does that mean? 
I think that when you don't cultivate your own literary tradition, whether you're Japanese or, 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 you know, Saudi Arabian, if you don't cultivate your own tradition in the name of this kind of superficial cosmopolitanism, then it's very hard to understand why things happen. I mean, this is the point of the literary education, right? Is that like you are, you are being inducted into a culture. You're going to understand why something's not going to happen in Nebraska, which every American would intuitively understand wouldn't happen and not, you know, why it wouldn't happen because you've been acculturated into a certain world. And so you understand how things work, but you would try to explain it to foreigners and you would realize how hard it is to explain. And I can give a funny little example about this, but you know, Americans, you can always recognize Americans, right? Even though Americans are extremely diverse and they can be from any race or color or age or sex or anything. And yet, you know, if you walk down the street in Europe and you say, which of these hundred people are Americans, you would get it right a hundred percent of the time because it's not because of what they look like, but it's because of the, it's something mental that you see. If I give you another example, like Jews, so, you know, we're all Jews here. If, if I said, do you have to guess who's Jewish in this room? You wouldn't have to guess. You would know instantly. If I said, like, who's gay? Well, you know, people would be embarrassed. Oh, it's a stereotype and everything. But, I mean, come on. You know exactly who's gay, right? Just by looking. And that's, but that's very, um, those are kind of things that are produced by these mysterious movements that are very hard to explain. But when you're talking about languages, like... By the specificity and the particularity of human experience is what you're saying. There are no... There are no unspecific or unparticular individuals anywhere. They don't exist. There's no such thing. They don't exist. Exactly. And that's the ideology of globalization. We're all going to come together and hug and like meet in the Dubai duty-free shop, right? I mean, that's the idea. Well, in the 1990s, I remember there was a very funny cartoon. You know, world literature was preceded by the idea of world music. And there was a very funny cartoon uh, that depicted David Byrne holding a tape recorder and Paul Simon holding a tape recorder, startled to bump into each other in the Amazon rainforest where they're looking for tribal sounds. Well, I mean, this literally almost happened. I mean, Paul Simon went to Bahia, which is in, in Brazil, which is a place I've spent a whole lot of my life. And, you know, his whole career revival was based on, quote-unquote, discovering Brazilian music. Well, I mean, Brazil had 200 million people, so it didn't really, you know, it was already there. They had already discovered themselves. And, but there's a, there's a sort of white savior aspect to this too. But I think if, you know, that's part of the guilt complex, you know, world is world literature, world music is anything that's not in English. Well, let me get to a sentence in your essay that was one of the sentences or the ideas that I admire most. We've now approached the delicate subject of cultural appropriation. And now on the one hand, on the one hand, I think we've agreed given the analysis that we've made, that you've made, that basically cultures are permeable. They are not sealed off um, from everyone else, nor are they open and available to everyone else. It all depends on the work and the relations and so on. On the other hand, there is um, the problem with Byrne and with Simon 
was not that they borrowed, but as you would, as you said in your essay, the problem with the cultural appropriation is that there isn't that it doesn't, doesn't appropriate enough. enough. And w talk a little bit about this question. Talk about the duty to appropriate, or or the responsibility to appropriate. Well, so cultures have always done this. I mean, the fact that people are annoyed or, or offended by this is, is, is happened like three years ago. It's kind of fascinating, actually. If you look at art, uh, painting, for example, everybody always copied each other. You know, if you, if you had a good idea, then you would, you would borrow the idea. I mean, this was, there's this idea of plagiarism now, which is very, uh, well, I mean, I'm not in favor of plagiarism, but I'm certainly in favor of cultural appropriation. But when it's, you know, not deeply enough, you have to go... If you're going to just fetishize foreign cultures and just, you know, have a little Shiva statue next to your Buddha statue next to your gong from, you know, the Hopis of New Mexico, I think, like, the problem with that isn't that it's offensive or racist. It's just silly and kind of dumb, you know, because what the hell do you know about Buddha if you just bought that thing in a, in a garden center in Houston, you know? Um you, in order to really engage with a foreign culture, you really do have to put in the time. You have to learn the language. You have to you have to spend a lot of time studying. It's a scholarly thing. It's not a um, or an artistic endeavor. But I think that you know to 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 appropriate deeply enough means don't just read one book. If you're interested in China, China's a big place. It's been around for a long time. Like you have to read hundreds of books about China before you can know anything about it. But I think that often now translation offers a kind of false intimacy. It's a little window, but uh, which is good. But um, but the rhetoric is often, you know, what I have a problem with. And specifically when we're talking about Americans and, and English speakers, um, I think that our duty should be to our own culture first. I think that your your point is a powerful one, which is, that appropriation, since it is unavoidable and is how art and literature progresses, it is the engine of, of artistic development in some deep way. The important point is not to warn against it, but to warn that appropriation brings responsibilities with it. Well, except that if, if it's distracting you too much from your own culture, that if you're not proficient in your own culture, then actually, you know, that's where you should start. Of course, you have to start there. If you're, if if you don't have a, if you don't have a solid sense of your own national or, or culture or language, how can you possibly understand anybody else's? Um, it's something that right, well, you don't have an experience knowing what it is to understand such things. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, why do you study English grammar first and you learn what a preposition is and you diagram sentences? That's the only way that you can actually approach a foreign language is if you know English well. And I think the same way that you can uh, approach foreign culture and literature is only through a knowledge of your own literature. But as, as I say in the essay, um, that education is so out of fashion. I think it will probably never come back into fashion. The Beowulf to Chaucer to Shakespeare kind of education that you know you have to actually issue disclaimers that you're not a fascist if you think that people should learn Shakespeare. Um, this is this is really um, this is really 
disturbing because I think it just plays into the Kardashian. It plays into the, the superficiality and the dumbness of everything in our culture. And it's very commercial. I mean, it's, it, it, it sells people's books, you know, other uh, new books. This is sort of the same thing in, in college. There was a philosophy professor everybody loved and what she taught instead of teaching like the straight canon, she would teach the women who should have been included in the canon. Um, but you can't understand them because they're responding to the men that they were reading. And so if you don't know, if you don't know canon first, you really can't understand. You can't understand what they were. Well, this is a basic problem with our educational system now. I mean, I think that when I was in college, there was this very vogue-ish department called Modern Culture and Media. And it was basically theory. And it was like Deleuze and these kind of people that Leon is such a fan of, <laughs> you know, but like, but these are these are eighteen year olds, and I was like, and they're criticizing this, and they're criticizing that, and they don't know anything about history or sociology or economics or or, or, or literature or languages or, or psychology, and suddenly they're elevated to this position of being cultural critics without actually having a culture. And um, and you know, people would, and, you know, they wouldn't study Dante, but they would study like you know the Cosby Show, and I I. And, intuitively felt that this was really dangerous and wrong and stupid. And I find that um, un unfortunately the superficiality and dumbness of our culture now has, has, has borne out that concern. I mean, I think when I was writing my Sontag book, I was very enamored of Robert Hutchins, who was the president of the university of Chicago when he was only 30 years old. And he was an incredibly progressive figure who was also an arch conservative because it was basically a great book school and um, and it created an incredible generation of of brilliant intellectuals, including Susan Sontag and and, and, and Bob Silvers and, and Philip Roth and, and you know all these people that came out of there. Um, I'm sorry, did Philip Roth go to Chicago? I might be misspeaking. Um, I don't know. And I, I, no, he went to he went to Bucknell. Sorry, he went to Bucknell. Yes, yes. Shame on you, the detail of his life. I know. Well, I think that um, I'll never be allowed to be a critic at Le Monde. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> my, my ambitions have been shattered with this podcast. You know, Ben, I want to I add a, an emphasis here, which is we have been speaking very prescriptively about writers. And I think it's important for us to add that, of course, writers are free to write any damn thing they want. Um, and oh, yeah. yeah, I know, but I want our listeners to understand that, um, you know, these days, if you don't contextualize things, everybody is mistaken for things that they're not. And um, obviously writers, and if they wish to experiment, if they're turned on by something they've discovered in another culture, um then, you know, it's a free country, etc. But they are not exempt from judgment about the literary and intellectual quality of what it is that they've done. Well, I just think that in general, people, whether they're writers or readers, and I mean, I think a lot of my essay is, is directed towards readers as much as to writers. It's just really important to know your own culture first. And, um, and to really understand what you're reading and why. I mean, so why do we have this education um, 
I was taught English every day of my life until I graduated from high school. Every day I had English class, just like a Dutch kid would have Dutch class or a French kid would have French class. You know, it's not just because you speak a language, you don't actually know a language. You know, it's actually very hard to learn your own language. And as much as, I mean, I've studied as many languages as probably anyone. Um, I mean, you know this, I, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time on this and, um, but I, I still think that my main thing I should know is, is English. The, the thing that I, that I depart from is English. When you describe in your essay, when you describe seeing that bookshelf and recognizing you knew exactly what that library was, that's the test. If you feel at home in a room, if you could recognize just by looking at the colors, like you knew, you already knew what books you were going to find there. That's, that means that that's really your, that's your home. That's where you're moored. And actually anybody who reads that, that part of the essay and doesn't recognize what you're talking about is unmoored. Any English person who was raised in America doesn't, doesn't, when you describe the colors of those books, even like the weird floral pattern, um, and they've never seen that and they don't know what that is, that means that, you know, they, they're, they're not racinated in the way that you are, even though you learn languages. Well, but because before, in my grandparents' generation, that was something everybody shared. Every middle-class educated American had read those books. And that gave the country and the culture a kind of means of talking to each other. And um, I think that, you know, when you see the divisions in America, of course, America was always divided, but there was a kind of common language that now is provided by popular TV and, and music and, and stuff like that. It's no longer provided by literature, but, you know, popular TV and music are basically commercial values. And literature teaches us non-commercial values. I guess it can teach us commercial values as well. But the ultimate idea is that it, it inducts you into a kind of understanding and a kind of tradition that I think we really miss. I mean, I miss it in America. I, 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 there's, there's really, you know, as Leon, you just said, like, there's nothing you can say that you can, you can assume people are going to understand. You've, you've lost the common language. It keeps getting invoked by people who don't know it. And I mean, what I mean by that is we talk, we talk a lot about our history. We talk a lot about the canon and the people who are excluded from the canon. And, you know, there's, there is hardly a day goes by in Washington, in New York, in California anyway, probably anywhere if you have a cell phone, that you're not reminded of this country's past. And how are you supposed to know? Well, but this is fascinating. Because this is like a, this is a great example, um, Celeste. Because there's an assumption now in a lot of these discussions that race is something that was discovered like on last Thursday. No, 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 not last Thursday. On the Sunday that the sixteen nineteen project appeared. Exactly. That was the first time anybody had ever challenged an official narrative in the United States. We didn't know about it before. We just didn't know about it. Right. Nobody who knew that there was racism in America. Every minority. Well, not only every minority. I mean, everybody's been talking about this in America since at least the 18th century. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something that is, it has a long, long tradition. And um, it has, there's a, you know, this idea of this monolithic canon is so fascinating because people are always reacting against it. But I said, like, you know, how many people have actually read Moby Dick or 
or, you know, leaves of grass. Why would you want to put Toni Morrison into a canon that you have no interest in reading? That's the thing. That's the thing I don't understand. Well, but this is what's happened. They're like tearing down something that's already been torn down. It doesn't exist to the point that people are completely illiterate. And it really... Most of the prestige that the canon still has is generated by the people who keep complaining about it. Like... Well, as if, as, as if everybody's forced to like recite lines of Chaucer, you know, I mean, this is not the um, public schools in Houston, Texas. I can tell you that where I'm from. Right. Ben, you know, I want to go back to some, to, to a theme that we, you know, we talk about, you're very right and eloquent about um, our literary and linguistic delinquents as English speakers, readers, and writers. But I want to go back to those peoples and languages in the world who feel threatened by English. I think you probably know there is, someone puts out a list of the number and the name of all the languages that can be reliably said to have disappeared within the past year. And, and it is a deeply depressing list because um, it comes out every year. And I, you know, I remember, I'm going to tell you a story, uh, um, 20 years ago or so, I spent an amazing afternoon in Walpi, which is the Mesa, the Hopi Mesa that became famous because Abi Varborg visited it when he was crazy. And, There's and, a new book about that, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, and I spent, I spent an amazing afternoon, amazing for many reasons there. And um, as I was up there, I was walking across the summit and these two young women were walking alongside of me, not far from me, and they were obviously costumed for some ritual or liturgical activity. There were feathers, there was makeup. So I said hello, and they sheepishly said hello, and I said, what are you doing? And they just kind of smiled and said nothing, and I said, where are you going? And I was, you know, curious and making conversation. I said, where are you going? And they sheepishly smiled and said nothing. And suddenly I got it. And I looked at them and I said, you don't want me to know, do you? And they said, no. And, and, and you know, especially a culture like that, you know, the, you know, the Mesa itself used to be inaccessible. You know, the way they rise from the ground. Yeah. Except in the 1930s, it's a great American story, a movie company from Hollywood wanted to shoot something up there and couldn't figure out a way to get the heavy cameras up there. So they just went ahead and built a road to it all the way up. Yeah. You know, because the movie had to be made. And there is a kind of defensiveness about particularism here that I think, again, has to be distinguished from certain ugly phenomena in our time and, you know, my heart goes out to some of these situations. Of course. Well, it's like it's like extinct animals. You know, they'll never come back. Yes, endangered species. Yes, exactly. What, what Mina Mizumura, and I really recommend this book so much. It's called um, the, the Fall of Language in the Age of English from Columbia University Press. It's an excellent book. Um, she's talking about, I mean, I think it's pretty common to think about you know, certain tribes or certain really uh, tiny languages that are, that are being destroyed by the bigger languages. But what was fascinating about what she was writing was how 
this phenomenon was affecting even these big languages. So, you know, Japanese has 100 million speakers and it's a, one of the richest countries in the world and they're extremely literate and it's a very apparently flourishing language. But actually, um, when you have one language that's the, the only international language, then anything else is by definition provincial. And this is really something I've seen in France a lot, which, which you know, Americans are always intimidated by France. And they always think it's, you know, a bunch of people wearing fancy clothes and then a cloud of perfume underneath the Eiffel Tower. You know, they're all sort of looking down at you because you don't know how to eat the escargot. But in fact, France is very insecure culturally. Um, it's very much, it, it, it feels very much under pressure from, from English. And it feels that the centrality of French literature, which was alive, you know, as as recently as the 60s, you know, when Sartre and, and Camus and, and, and those people, Simone de Beauvoir, they were all still writing. That was, um, there was nothing. Nobody would have thought that Fran French was a provincial language, but now it is. And actually you see the effects of it. You know, you see the books that are coming out in France. They're often extremely boring and provincial. In fact, they're just like, the, the ambition has kind of gone out of it. You feel it. Because they're written for, like they're written in the hopes of being translated into English. Is that the problem? No, just because like they've lost that central feeling. You can just feel it in the writers. So they no longer really feel like uh, they're going to try to say anything important. It's kind of, it's very encoded. I'm just hard to explain what I mean by this, but uh, if you look at the French literature of the sixties, it was, it was, totally universal it was aspiring to universality and it knew that it was going to be read in buenos aires and in copenhagen and in tokyo and now you know in the same way that americans now you know important american writers who are who are translated know that their books are going to be read all over the world and that gives you a certain kind of uh authority and a responsibility um well correct me if correct me if i'm wrong but early in the history of the internet, there was some attempt in, made in French law to do something about legislating a French internet, right? Because... Well, this is true, and, and Americans always made fun of this, so the French are so snobby and they don't want, you know, and all this. No, it's not snobby at all. It's not well, no, the French, though, the French did invent the internet. I mean, the first time I ever saw what became the internet was the Minitel, which was something that, you know, we had under my bed in France. And it was this big computer and you hauled it out and you, um, and it was, you could like see what time the train was going to go. It was that kind of stuff, but it was basically the internet. Um, bef you know, this was in the early nineties. So. But what I'm referring to is the, they feared that the internet would, would finalize the tyranny of English. Right, which it did in a certain way. I mean, it also, I have to say, it also finalized the tyranny of bad French because as with every other country, crazy people yelling at each other sort of took over the internet, um, you know, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it removed the, well, it also, you know, it removed what I'm saying, the prestige of the literary education. I mean, so I had partially, along with my English language education, I also had a pretty traditional French education which is something I loved. Um, I mean, nobody else loved it in my school, but I thought it was great that you would memorize all these poems and you, you know, you, it was a very, very rigorous kind of, kind of education. But once you got out of it, you knew at age 18 kind of what an educated person was supposed to know as a basis. And still to this day um, in my dotage, I still know 
uh, I still know what everybody's talking about in French. And I still know what people are talking about in English. And that's what it's about, really, is, is, is taking the time to cultivate your own language in order to make people better citizens and better readers. Um, you know, if you see how this whole phenomenon of, of fake news, which is, alas, not limited to the right, um, I mean, would that it were, uh, there's a lot of fake news on the left as well. And it kind of presumes that there's no authority, there's no canon, you know, Celeste, as you said, there's no actual, like, way to measure what's true or false, um, because there's no cultural authority anymore. And of course, there's a lot of bad things to say about cultural authority, but there's also... That's the subject, brother, that, 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 that will, you will be back to that's discuss that, essay. because that's the next essay, and that's the next podcast. Before we go, though, I do have to leave you with one observation I've made from my own years of literary wanderings, which is whenever I'm always reminded of it whenever I hear talk about translation. Um, there are three English words that many of my distinguished writer friends have always uttered with a special solemnity that I've never heard them utter about, about anything else, Ben. And those three English words are my Swedish translator. <laughs> <laughs> well, because this is translation is ambition, because how else are you going to get a Nobel Prize? Well, that's the point. Right. Isn't it? So it's all, it's careerism, it's commercialism, it's everything that literature should oppose. It all comes from Swedish. I'm not even translating to Swedish. You better check. We'll check for you. No, I'm not. I'm not. I, I would know. Well, you should get on that. No, it's humiliating. Ben, give it up. Give it up. Yeah. But this podcast, that should, that's like your goal. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I haven't been on a Swedish podcast. You've never been on a Although Swedish. I was on the, no, but I was on the Knausgaard podcast. No, we won't, we won't judge you too harshly for that. No, no, no. It's, it's pretty tongue in cheek. Believe me. It's called our struggle. It's hilarious. That's oh, that was always a slightly dubious title for a book, but never mind. <laughs> well, you know, it was at least original, Leon. Well, yeah, but you know, the first, the first, the first one, it just, it didn't turn out well. Anyway, thank you so much. It's still in print, though. You know what? <laughs> That's spoken like a true American. I mean, from the careerist perspective, you got to respect it. Yes. All right. <laughs> if only, if only he had dreamed of nothing except staying in print. I, well, listen, you know, when you think big, as as I think Donald Trump said, if you're going to be thinking anyway, you might as well be thinking big. All right. And with that inspiring, that <laughs> thank you, brother. Love talking to you. Bye. Come back soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and you head over to our website, Ben's essay is available to non-subscribers for a limited time on our now showing page. And of course, if you are a subscriber, his essay, this essay and previous essays that he's written for us, also all of the issues of Liberty's past and present are available to you on our website via digital subscription. If you are not yet a subscriber, um, head over to our website and uh, correct that status.